What defines success? I needed to have really thick skin if I was going to survive in the business world especially. What happens when you get knocked down? There were some very challenging times, including when my mother had to go next door to the neighbor to borrow peanut butter to make a peanut butter sandwich. What makes some people radiate? I care about doing the right thing, being true to myself every day. And if I can follow what I'm passionate about, I know I'm going to be successful. This is Radiate. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. This week, Trevor Burgess, the CEO of C1 Financial, a community bank in Florida. Prior to that, Trevor was a senior banker at Morgan Stanley, where he took several well-known companies public, including Chipotle. He took a chance leaving the security of Wall Street to go out on his own. But that's just one of the braver things Trevor has done. He's also widely recognized as the first openly gay CEO of a publicly listed bank. In this conversation, we talk about how he thrived despite discrimination and his childhood struggles when his mother had a hard time putting food on the table. Here's Trevor Burgess. Trevor, what made you want to leave a cushy Wall Street job and go off on your own? Really what led me to quit was that I saw so many fantastic entrepreneurs. I did IPOs. So I did the IPO of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. I did the IPO of Chipotle. My first IPO was Priceline.com. But if you get to work with an entrepreneur like Steve Ells and see the business that he built at Chipotle and see the business that he built and how passionate he was about it, I really thought that maybe I could run a business and be super passionate about what I was doing. So you got hit by the bug? I got hit by the entrepreneur bug. And do you regret it? Not at all. Uh, Don't look back uh, one bit. I really am excited about building teams, hiring amazing people who want to solve a problem, change an industry. We talk about a lot about how we've changed the banking industry by having a little bit more fun and be focusing on our clients, focusing on speed, service, and certainty and technology in an industry that to this point has been rather tired and slow. How do you create that, Trevor? Part of it is by focusing on a very specific segment. So we focus on business owners and try to engineer the entire organization to meet their needs. So for example, we've figured out that we can close a commercial real estate loan, a loan for their business, for their manufacturing facility, for their warehouse, for their office, in three weeks or less. In most banks, especially most national banks, that deal can take three months. So if we can do something in three months, that speed difference, the ability to get a deal done when it needs to get done, Mm -hmm. is really, really powerful. So in part, I benefited from not being a banker before. I went into an industry and said, how would I really design a bank so that it can meet the needs of entrepreneurs? And we started from scratch. We started with five branches, $230 million. Today we're 32 branches, uh, approaching $1.7 billion in assets, and are having a good time really helping Florida's businesses. But you're giving away free Mercedes? <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it's really important to stand out from the crowd. 
And when you don't have a big marketing budget, when you are an entrepreneurial startup, right, you've got to think about ways that you can make a big difference. I was going to change the name of the bank from Community Bank of Manatee to C1 Bank. And C1 Bank is just a simplification of our ideals to put our clients first and our community first. But I need to change the name of the bank, and I didn't have this huge marketing budget. So I said, what could I do that would really get the public's attention? Deposit a million dollars, and I'll give you a Mercedes-Benz. Now, it was a five-year CD, and you just received all of the interest that you would have received over the five years up front in the form of a car. But it really captured the public's attention. We were on news around the world, and I didn't have to spend a dime on the name change. Right, because we were already in the papers everywhere. Right, that's free marketing that's right free there. free marketing, exactly. And how did you come up with that idea? I mean, that's very clever. Well, I had actually heard about a bank uh, in Minnesota that if you deposited uh, money into a CD, they'd give you a rifle. And I thought, um, <laughs> I, I thought maybe I could improve upon that idea. <laughs> I love that. I wonder what kind of interest they were paying. I mean, yeah. You know, you well, they said it was very successful because the uh, hunters didn't have to tell their wives that they bought a gun. They could just say, oh, look, the I, bank gave it to me. Right? <laughs> I love that. So what is it like being openly gay in a corporate environment? Well, I'd started by saying it's nice that I own the company, right? <laughs> right. It's very, you get to set the rules. Exactly. So... I think the best thing about it is that I'm able to attract a really amazing workforce because there are too many places in corporate America where women, people of color, gays and lesbians aren't given the opportunity to thrive. And by hiring from 100% of the population rather than the 30% of the population that are straight white men, we are able to attract some of the very best people to work in, again, what is normally thought of as a pretty sleepy industry. Community banking uh, has been a very quiet place until the recession happened, and then it just got a, to be a really hard place. Yeah. We took uh, this sleepy industry and said, what if I could hire the very smartest minds, bring them to bear on our organization, serve our clients in a first-class way, and we've become the sixth fastest growing bank in the country over the past five years. Now, I don't want to send the impression that I discriminate against straight white men. We have a lot of them in the bank, okay? <laughs> but we're open to hiring everybody and judge people based upon the value that they add. You know, I talk to a lot of other um, CEOs of minority-owned firms, uh, and many of them say the same thing to me, that they are more aware of the 100% of the talent pool versus, as you say, the 30%. Why does it take someone like you or, or an African-American CEO or a woman CEO to, to understand that, why? I think very often people hire what they know. But by being an outsider, right, by having that experience growing up, right, when I came out, I was 19 years old, I was, you know, that was a difficult, you know, experience and is a difficult experience. What year was that? This was uh, around 1991. So we were still quite conservative yeah. as a country. What was it like to come out and what led you to that decision at the early age of 19? So I was the president of my fraternity. Uh, I was a precocious 19-year-old uh, having a, a great time learning, a great experience in college, but I wasn't being true to myself. And... 
I made the decision one day to just be who I was, and I was to be uh, gay. I told my fraternity brothers about it. They didn't take it too well, and one of them decided to write an article about me in the Dartmouth Review, and it wasn't a very nice article. But at that moment, and in part because of that adversity, and in part because of that nasty article, did I make a decision that I was going to forever be sort of who I was and be very authentic in that. Mm -hmm. So I quit the fraternity and became president of the Gay Students Group. And uh, it was a challenging time mostly because it was pretty lonely, right? This was not Boston or New York or San Francisco or Miami. Right. This was Hanover, New Hampshire, population 6,000, and that's including the cows. <laughs> <laughs> what was the article that your fraternity brother wrote? What did it say? It's, it called me a renowned sodomite. Wow. Right, which was pretty interesting. And that got published in the paper? Yes, yes, it did. And what what was... I mean, you mentioned you quit the fraternity, but was there any backlash at the time on campus, or, or, or what, what happened? No, that was, that was an acceptable thing to happen in, you know, 1991, 1992. Thankfully, we've come a long way, mm. and Dartmouth has changed a lot, and society has changed a lot. And, but going through that sort of experience it taught me a couple of things. One, that I needed to have really thick skin if I was going to survive in the business world especially. And number two is that I did have to be authentic. I needed to be myself completely if I was going to be successful. I think that when people are hiding something or aren't able to really be true to themselves, it's difficult uh, when they're interacting with others in business. And when I talk about my husband and my daughter and how we went to the grocery store and how we went to the swimming pool and what we did over the weekend, right, that's my gay agenda, right? That's my homosexual agenda is I went to Publix grocery shopping, right? <laughs> it's just real life. The more that people understand that it's just being who you are, it's just being another human being with real fears and hopes and dreams, mm. uh, the more disarming it is. Did your parents already know? Had you come out to them at the time? It was all sort of simultaneous. Okay. <laughs> My mother and father divorced when I was seven. They were both supportive. My mother initially more supportive. Uh, but now everyone's come fully around and uh, are big you know, proponents of equality. When we come back, what growing up in a divorced home taught Trevor about his own success and family. But first, this. This episode of Radiate is brought to you by Stamps.com. The holidays are almost here, which means you probably don't have time to go to the post office. There's traffic, there's parking. It's going to be packed with everybody mailing their holiday gifts and packages. So why don't you use Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office, finding parking, standing in line. Everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. You buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. Then all you have to do is wait for the mailman to pick it up. 
It is easy and convenient. Right now, sign up for stamps.com and use the promo code RADIATE for the special offer. A four-week trial plus $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale so you can weigh your packages. So go right now to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RADIATE. Stamps.com. Enter RADIATE. This episode of Radiate is also brought to you by Chocolate Selfie. Chocolate Selfie is exactly what it sounds like. It's a mobile app that allows you to print your favorite photos, including selfies, directly onto chocolate, which is then delivered to your door in just three business days. It's fun, it's easy, it's a really cool holiday gift for the season. You basically take a picture, you choose one from your photo library, and then you pick the chocolate of your choice, you customize a look, and then you're done. So forget about buying dad the tie for the holidays or getting the shirt for mom or the sweater for mom. Give them a chocolate selfie. It's an unforgettable gift for your friends and family. They're gonna love it. They're gonna think it's really cool. Plus, you can do this with our special code RADIATE and get 10% off your order. Download Chocolate Selfie from the App Store today or visit their website, www.mychocolateselfie.com and use our code RADIATE to get an extra 10% off this really cool holiday gift. childhood like? Was it pretty normal? It was a fairly normal childhood. I was a, uh, uh, raised by a single mother. Uh, she worked very hard to provide for myself and my brother. And it was, it definitely gave me a very strong moral and ethical compass when, you know, your mom has to work really hard to put food on the table and to make sure you have a winter coat, mm-hmm. right? You were you middle class? Well, I had I had different experiences. So, for the first seven years of my life, uh, when my father and mother were married, you know, we were a middle class family. He was a college professor. My mother didn't work. When my parents divorced, my mother was supporting us at first on her own, and then we were definitely poor. And there were some very challenging times, including when my mother had to go next door to the neighbor to borrow peanut butter to make a peanut butter sandwich. Mm. When you go through that sort of life experience, you really come to value uh, what a dollar is. Now, raising my daughter today, I (laughs) sort of laugh when she has experiences. You know, I have millions and millions of frequent flyer miles, and we cashed them in, and we took her to uh, London when she uh, was about four and a half. And we flew British Airways first class using those miles. And now she thinks that every plane should have a bed. So we're on (laughs) JetBlue. And she goes, Daddy, why doesn't this turn into a bed? And she was getting upset. (laughs) And I have to, I I think back to my own childhood and go, boy, uh, you know, I don't even remember going on vacation. You know, I didn't go to Europe. <laughs> right? right, much less flying on an yeah, airplane. Exactly. You know, I hear a lot of very successful people express the same concerns. I mean, I know it's a high-end problem, but how do you raise children who aren't spoiled, right? Yeah. Because now they have all the means in the world. 
um, you know, but 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 how do you keep them on that track, right? I think that's a real it's a real challenge. It's it's a as you said a very high class problem. It, it is a high class problem. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay, so 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 going back though to your childhood, that that must have been very jarring for you to go from not only a divorce in mm-hmm. your you know between your mother and your father, but then a complete change in you know in the you know in your income stream. What in there, Trevor? Do you think you might have taken out of that that made makes you who you are? So I think there are two main things that have come out of that childhood experience. One is that I work really hard. And there's something in me that drives me to work very hard to be successful. So at Morgan Stanley, I made managing director at 34 years old. I uh, was one of the first, or maybe the first openly gay person to become managing director at Morgan Stanley. Uh, That was a big deal. And in being an entrepreneur here at, at C1 Bank, I work harder than anybody, right? I'm I put in a lot of hours to make sure that this business is really successful. But define that for me, Trevor, because people say that. I work really hard, but what does that mean? Well, the nice thing as as being the owner, right, being the president, CEO, and a major shareholder is that it's my passion. And if you can find something that you're really passionate about and something that you really love and it's a good way to make money, boy, hold on to that. Right. That's nirvana. Yeah, that is nirvana. The second thing I learned, though, from my childhood experience is to focus on doing the right thing. So about a year and a half ago, I looked at the earnings of all of my employees and I saw that we had 26 people, a little over 10% of our employee base, that were making less than $30,000 a year. Now if you go on MIT's living wage calculator, you'll see that $30,000 is about what is considered a living wage in the state of Florida. And I said, you know what? This just isn't the right thing. Then I looked and realized that all 26 people were women. And I really thought about my mother and my childhood experience. So on April Fool's Day 2014, we became the first bank in the country to institute a living wage. Now, the shareholders were willing to make a little bit less money in order for all of our employees to at least exist at a living wage. And I know that if my mother had made a living wage instead of a you know, minimum wage, how different my life uh, would have been. It turns out that while this was not the main motivation, that it was a really shrewd business move. Because where I can pay 50% more than the average bank is paying for an incoming teller, I'm able to hire the very best, right? And as I'm trying to serve entrepreneurs, very sophisticated business owners, I need to have the very best, even on the front lines. And so it's been a huge win for my business. And what did your mother do? My mother was a secretary. Okay. Yeah. And she Later was- in life, she, be- she went back to college and then became a uh, kindergarten teacher. Is she still alive? Yeah, she in fact lives in our building in St. Petersburg, <laughs> Florida. So, and my uh, daughter, while I'm here in New York, is enjoying some grandparent time. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. very nice. So she must be so proud of you. We have a really nice relationship. Uh, my, she and my stepfather uh, uh, are very close to our daughter. And it's wonderful having grandparents close by. It gives uh, parents a lot of 
you know, it does take a village to raise children. It and uh, I know that as a fact. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very helpful to have uh, my mother and stepfather around. And, and my, uh, my father and my stepmother are also quite supportive. And I'm going to Portugal. Uh, Gary and I are going to Portugal in a couple of weeks. And uh, our daughter will stay with uh, the other grandparents uh, for a week. So it's nice to have supportive parents who are very good at being grandparents. I want to talk a little bit about your Wall Street career. Were there moments, Trevor, when you were on Wall Street and at Morgan Stanley where, you know, you really had to fight discrimination? I think that there, people at Morgan Stanley, people on Wall Street are extremely smart. So overt discrimination is very rare. Nobody's going to call you a name to your face. But I do think there are much more subtle and maybe more insidious forms of discrimination, which is, you know, do you not give the project to somebody because of what you think the client might think? Do you not invite the woman onto the team because, you know, the client is sexist? Ultimately, though, by working really hard, I was able to rise through the ranks, and I was able to lead teams, and Morgan Stanley recognized me for the value that I was able to add. And so I'm very thankful for the experiences that I did have there. But you better have thick skin on Wall Street, whether you're gay or straight or a man or a woman. Give me an example of that, regardless of whether it had anything to do with you being gay or not. When did you need to have that thick skin? How did you get over it? So I'm sitting at a closing dinner for a big deal we did for a mining company. And I had worked really hard on this deal. And the CEO, after a few drinks, talked about uh, that he was going to go to a Broadway show. And... He couldn't remember the name of the show, which was The Boy from Oz, by the way. So he described it instead as being the show about the fag who died of AIDS. And as I'm sitting next to him, I really had to decide, what the hell am I going to do with this guy here? I try to use humor a lot in that sort of situation. So I said, oh, that's my favorite show ever. (laughs) (laughs) Did he know that you were? I don't think so. It it doesn't really come up in business. You know, I don't think any of my clients uh, in Florida, the the businesses that I'm serving, care one bit about if I'm gay or not. I think they care about speed, service, certainty. Are we going to get the deal done? What's the pricing of the deal? How competitive are we? And are we able to meet their needs? Mm. Um, We happen to have a little more fun. We do a lot of sports marketing. We're very good at uh, branding and marketing. And I think they appreciate this entrepreneurial spirit uh, more than they care one bit about uh, who I love. I think some people who listen to this will think about it as I am, these movies, Wall Street, you know, the wolf of Wall Street and, you know, how sexist they are. And there's women all over the place and there's prostitution and there's bar hopping. I mean, is that then true to life? And how did you deal in that environment? I think it's a bit of an exaggeration, of course, for the movies. But what I did is I just worked instead. You know what? And nothing like hard work to get ahead while others are doing something else. Trevor, what advice would you give someone coming up in the world of finance or just coming up as an entrepreneur? I mean, what, you know, outside of the standard, follow your passion, Mm -hmm. you know, do what you love, work hard. 
give me something that's really different that that has helped you that you would then advise somebody younger than you. I'll give you two. One is I heard David Rubenstein speak. I, I won Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year in Florida, and I heard him speak at the national ceremony. And That's a big award. Yeah, he said, nobody ever wins a Nobel Prize working nine to five. And that really made sense to me, really resonated with me, because I view myself as being in the Nobel Prize business. I don't view myself as being in the banking business. I don't view myself as being in the community banking business. I view myself as trying to change an industry, think about how we can revolutionize banking, right? how we can do things the right way by the clients all the time. So if you think about it like science, like you're trying to unlock you know, the mysteries of DNA, right? that you're trying to win a Nobel Prize in your adventure, in your business venture, that, that's a pretty powerful way to think about uh, making a difference. The other thing is surrounding yourself with people that are smarter than you are. And boy, am I lucky uh, to have assembled a team of people who are really, really smart and really, really excited to come to work each day, solve problems permanently rather than keep identifying them over and over again. And how do you pick yourself back up? I mean, you, you mentioned this I mean, fascinating moment early on in your life uh, you know, in college, but you know, I, I always think that people have these moments, big moments in their lives where they either, you know, pick themselves up and move on higher or they get sucked into that moment and fall and fail for the rest of their lives. So how do you, you know, is there a moment like that or another moment like that, Trevor, in your career that you can think to think about? And like, how did you overcome that struggle? All of the struggles that I faced really led me to the same outcome, which is that I really just don't care what other people think about me. I care about doing the right thing, being true to myself every day. And if I can follow what I'm passionate about, I know I'm going to be successful. And that's helped me in business. You know, sure, it helped me having thick skin and not caring what other people thought when it comes to the gay issue. But in business, when people say, ah, you can never buy a bunch of Florida banks, you're never going to get approved by the regulators. You're buying at the wrong time, right? The whole world is going to come to an end. Miami will never recover, <laughs> right? We heard a lot of naysayers when uh, we were working on this project to uh, build a great Florida bank. And that not caring what other people are saying and what other people think about you, that's a really powerful tool. It's not that you shouldn't listen, make sure you have your antenna up, but at the end of the day, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, I think you have to have a really strong compass and head towards north. On the next episode of Radiate, something special for our listeners, our first podcast live event in front of a live audience featuring two dynamic women in the world of startups. Susan Line, the founder of venture firm Built by Girls, that's part of AOL, and Daniela Yakubaski, the founder of online jewelry retailer Bubble Bar. Together, the women joined me on a panel to give advice to a group of people on how to build women leaders. It was a packed room, guys, for this special Radiate event. Hear their stories, listen to their advice. That is next week. Thanks for joining us. As always, I'm Betty Lou. If you liked what you heard, please, please review us on iTunes. I could get more feedback. Also, find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Talk to you next week.